but you know, a voluntary submission to a Christian organization that was committed to helping you pray, confess, and and be um, however this side of heaven delivered from an unwanted besetting sin. I said, I don't, I don't, that sounds like church. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Guys, how you doing? Good. How are you? Yeah, doing great, Nick. Hanging in there. So, Matt, did you know that when Archbishop Peach sent a book to the entire roster of ACNA clergy this month, that it would be a book in which you play a starring role? I had no idea. The author didn't even contact me. I had no, I've heard of, uh, of uh, uh, Yusuf, Dr. Yusuf before. I've never, he never, I had no idea. It was like a good five or six pages. Yeah. Was, was he quoting the, something that you wrote then? I, I, parts of it seemed like maybe quotes from what I wrote. Parts of it seemed probably taken from the interview I did at GAFCON 2018. Oh, okay. uh, Anne and I did on stage um, there. I couldn't, I couldn't tell, but I'm sure that um, the, the ACNA being, as unified and um, involved in mutual love as we all are, that many people reading that are just going to love that I got so much um, space in that and that the Archbishop saw fit to send it out to everybody. Well, you're so, such a unifying force, yeah, Matt. That's, it really that's, is. That's my fortune. You know, facilitatory so. and ironic. <laughs> And ironic, you know. <laughs> that's right. It's uh, like you're like a Rorschach test, Matt. I love it. You know, like immediately responds, and you know where you are. That's right. Uh, well, in the past, we've done a couple stand firm book clubs looking at Kristen Dumais' Jesus and John Wayne and Beth Allison Barr's The Making of Biblical Womanhood. It's finally time for us to enter into my wheelhouse a stand firm movie club. There is a new Netflix original documentary by Christine Stolakis called Pray Away, which is about former leaders in the ex-gay, quote, conversion therapy movement, a term that we'll talk about, no doubt, and especially the Ministry of Exodus International. And these interviewees are lamenting their past involvement in trying to, quote, pray the gay away from people who wanted it gone. And we've all three seen this movie and wanted to spend today's episode reacting to it. So, guys, first blush, what did you think of the movie? I thought it was an exercise in you know, effective storytelling. Like the, the, the one of really the, well done. Yeah, one of the, as far as if you wanted to to, to create a, a documentary designed to not really wrestle with any evidence, but to pull heartstrings and to play on emotions and to to convince by by feeling um this is the kind of thing you make it's exactly the kind of thing you make and, and that's what it does it, it it there are some of course in every kind of controversy Document. uh, documentary there's going to be there has to be some truth right <laughs> there are some true elements and some things that exodus did and said back in the day that i think we probably disagree with now at the same time uh it was very lopsided and it was it 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 was told as a kind of re hero redemption story where the, the, the former leaders of this oppressive, uh, oppressive organization um, finally came out to the light, admitted the truth about themselves 
being uh, unable to do away with their desires for the same sex. And now they're living in a light of freedom. And of course, the, I think the closing scene is the one of the one of the former leaders of Exodus International, lesbian, now actively lesbian person, getting married to her or quote unquote married to her uh, partner in I, I think it's an Episcopal church. It's, oh, it's like yeah. one of the yeah, yeah. Of they course, showed the hymnal nineteen eighty two, baby. There's nothing more Episcopal than that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> So it just it just hits all the cultural tropes, you know, and, and it plays right into the, the you know on the um, one of the one of the tenets of critical theory when it's wound its way into our common parlance now is that storytelling trumps everything. Like if you can if you can get if you can get someone who's experienced pain or hurt or quote unquote oppression to tell their story, you that's unassailable. That 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 becomes truth regardless of whether the story has, has good factual evidence supporting it doesn't matter. You this is it's this is an era of storytellers and sages, and and so this documentary kind of picks up on that on that line of, of thinking. We should say that that's certainly a thing that documentarians yeah. do. They often come to their subject. They either hate or you love your subject. Trying to convince the viewer of something and to Preway's credit somewhat, I suppose, they do spend a pretty significant amount of screen time with Ch- Jeffrey McCall, the uh, formerly transgender <clears throat> man who is a proponent of anti-LBGTQ legislation and trying to do the work that Exodus was doing yeah. in a perhaps more interpersonal and, I don't know, way. And they did apparently, at least according to them, reach out to um, John Polk's ex-wife and were refused an an interview with her. Now, who knows what of that interview they would have included and all of that. But there was at least some effort made, I think, to include at least someone who could express the other side of things. I I thought, okay, so I read the Gospel Coalition's review of 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 the film. And the Gospel Coalition writer, I forget who it is, said he couldn't understand why, why you would put this Jeffrey, uh, you knew his name, what was his name? Uh, Jeffrey McCall. More Jeffrey McCall in the film. It seemed like a weird addition, but I, it made perfect sense to me. I thought, I thought, I thought it was a great, I thought, I thought the story what they, were telling, they were telling is, look, this is just another exodus. Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't an attempt to, to, I don't think it was an attempt to be fair. I think it was an attempt to say the, they're the still present. Yeah. Yeah. They're still doing it. It's just a new iteration. In <laughs> fact, they, they say at the end, uh, toward the end of the documentary, wherever there is this idea That's that right. homosexuality is inherently disordered, you're going to have an exodus. And that's it's the last and, line. Yeah. That's the last line of the interview. Yeah. And then they end the film showing Jeffrey <laughs> McCall. So they're right. literally drawing that line. This yeah. this guy is still doing the damage right. that Exodus was. They at least, though, let him talk a little bit about what he was trying to do. They did. Well, I thought what was fascinating um, is the way that it basically chronicled um, the the sort of 30 year trajectory of the transformation of the whole conversation surrounding sexuality from an action and they say this explicitly you know from an action to an identity and you know one of the main characters the the woman i forget her name who talked about how she used to think she used to think that just doing um or sort of participating in homosexual acts um was the problem and now she's come to realize that it's much more than just the action it's actually part of her identity and i thought that was really fascinating because we have 
um, you know, over the course of at least our Christian ministry explicitly or implicitly since the mid nineties, you know, I've walked that trajectory, you know, with this conversation. And I thought it was really fascinating that what started Exodus started as a bunch of people who were shocked and dismayed by their, um, what they would have been called disordered sexual desires. And then, you know, as Christians or want to do, uh, pray and seek um, uh, sort of release from, from besetting sins, you know, that transformed over the next 30 years into this, how could I repent of being myself, you know, and we've talked about this before. I mean, that's the, the core issue uh, as it's confronted today is that is that the what used to be considered a um, a behavior, you know, or or even a besetting sin is now considered to be a constitutive part of my my very essence or et, um, being, and that's um, that's where the the battle lines have been drawn, um, and I, which is why at the end, you know, the the Exodus former Exodus people were um, you know tearfully repenting of the fact that they had been causing people to. Um, essentially, quote unquote, hate themselves, which um, worse than that, you know. th- th- that guy, Randy Thomas, the final vice president of Exodus, said that he couldn't look at his hands because yeah, they had, blood, they on had blood on his hands. And he's talking about actual death and suicide specifically because of what he did. Yeah, I think I think this goes to the heart of maybe a, a, a faulty understanding of, of repentance and the sin nature within evangelicalism that, that wound its way into Exodus. I mean, yeah, uh, because because if you have if you have this idea that, okay, well, there's this deeply embedded desire that I have that's sinful. And until I get rid of that desire, I'm not going to be loved by God or, you know, I can't, the, the cross doesn't count for me. That, that seems to be the operating assumption that a lot of right. these guys are working with. Yeah. And that's what drove them insane. If I, if I thought that, you know, the besetting sins that I have were keeping me from the love of God and the cross wouldn't matter until I got rid of them and I couldn't be loved by God without getting rid of them, I would go insane too. But that's, that's, right. that's, 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 that's a, well, that that's guy, a uh, John, John Polk, who was the, I think the national spokesman for Exodus and was, right. had this wonderful story or wonderful seeming story of leaving the homosexual lifestyle, getting married, having children. And he would say in these interviews that he did not have homosexual lusts. He never thought about men in that way. Obviously, come to find out years later that that was untrue he refers to himself in the film as someone who lied every day of his life but i don't know if he was told that or if he was promised that he would never sin again but that's just not how we we think of repentance and redemption as you said matt this is this is something that you may deal with every day of your life but you you crucify it and you mortify it and you give it to Christ rather than pretending it doesn't exist. That's, that's not a way to wholeness. Well, and this is the problem, you know, that we ran into. I mean, it's actually, it's actually one of the things that drew me to Anglicanism was the, um, you know, at the time of the Reformation, the difference between infused and imputed righteousness, you know, and there's a lot of sort of practical functioning Roman Catholicism within mainline evangelicalism in the sense that, you know, the, the efficacy and truthfulness or the veracity of, God, of the gospel in someone's life is to the extent to which they have been delivered of their 
of their inherent sinfulness, you know, and replaced with an inherent righteousness. And of course, that's the, the goal, you know, I mean, sanctification is the goal, but that's promise, you know, Romans eight twenty nine. you know, it's called predestined, sanctified, and glorified, justified, sanctified, and glorified. But the problem, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, because I grew up in sort of the evangelical, broad evangelical world. And when I ran into the actual uh, Protestant teaching um, of, you know, imputed righteousness, that there's actually a forensic decision made and that, you know, whatever help happens on the other side of that is something we hope for and pray for and, and, and to a certain degree work to, <clears throat> according to Philippians. But nevertheless, it's secured. That gives the incredible freedom of looking at your besetting sins and actually um, wrestling with them, not in a sense of of lying to to the world or to yourself, but actually in a brutal honesty, you know. So it's it, it was fascinating for me because I was sitting there saying to what you were saying, Nikki. If if the truthfulness of this re- re- relied on my my ability to to be able to say with a straight face that I no longer have any of these besetting sins that once once um uh, when I once struggled with, well then eventually you would find yourself saying, well it must not be working. You know, I'm a hypocrite. I'm a liar because yes, which is exactly <laughs> what they all said. Exactly, because I would never counsel someone in any capacity, much less a, a sexual brokenness, to say that there's no possibility for you to ever have, have be wrestling with this the rest of your life. In fact, um, it's a good chance, given our sin nature and sort of the, the power of our uh, intense um, sexual desires and the disordering uh, reality of them, that this will, in fact, be your, your cross to bear, your thorn in your, your side. I mean, this, this may be the arena um, that you're in the rest of your Christian life. And so... Let's um, let's not pretend that it's going to be an easy one, but let's let's walk together um, in light of God's mercies and and continue to renew our minds, as Paul says in Romans 12. And I think that it was heartbreaking for me. There's a lot of heartbreaking aspects to it, but I think that was probably the number one was that these young people who who there's no reason to believe that they didn't approach Exodus with a real desire to be delivered from these these no, things. If there was you know? anybody who had been forced, they would have definitely found that person. Right. They, even, they, they even acknowledged that everybody was there because they wanted these desires gone. I love that. And I thought that was so hard. That was so heartwarming. And, um, you know, again, it, we all learn. And, and I, I'm glad that there are ministries that have not given up the hope that is actually the gospel set before sinners, that there can be some release from um, besetting sins, or at least the power of, um, you know, uh, what does top lady say, uh, cleanse me from its guilt and power, you know, I mean, in rock of ages, but, but I think that the, the obviously the pastoral, the theological breakdown was at that very point where we would say, there's no one is going to promise you the, I mean, the gospel doesn't promise you that you will be cleansed this side of heaven, but it will promise you the power to withstand you know, self-control is a fruit of the spirit and it may come in fits and starts, but that's the hope set before you. And yeah, that was heartbreaking for me that that was the end result of some of these guys was it, well, because I never actually was fully delivered from sin, this side of heaven, then it must not have worked. And that's just not, that's just not the, 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 the message of the Christian life. There's a kind of a fine line between, um, between the, the, okay, well, I'm not going to say that I don't have this desire because I do. Um, but then I'm also not going to say, you know, I guess it's not really a fine line. It's, a, it's, it's pretty much a gospel line. I'm not going to say that this, this, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that this uh, disordered desire is, is you know, good either, either. Right. So I think, mm. I think, you know, revoice and, and, 
the spiritual friendship movement, I think, err on the side of that, on the, on the other side, where they're recognizing, yeah, okay, it's sinful to act on these desires, but is the orientation itself something that we need to not celebrate? And, then, and so some of them come down and say, no, we, we should celebrate the orientation sans the sex, um, which is basically, I mean, if, if sans the sex, it's, it's friendship and so there's no reason to say yeah we just gay. call that friendship, <laughs> yeah, right. friendship right 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 um but that but that so i think what they're trying to do is to to remove the the the, the strange anti-gospel understanding of the self that at least I'm not, i don't know about exodus is an organization but some within exodus held by overcorrecting to this well okay this is inherently not necessarily good but there's some redemptive aspect to this orientation um, yeah and, it gets, and then mapping themselves onto the the gender gender map uh well that, I, and that's I, what i, I was talking about this. exactly and that that's what i'm talking about with the trajectory is that there's there's a and i think the guy at the last quote got it you know he says it's not a question of of um uh what did he say he said as it's long as it's not the people it's that. not the right. methods as okay. long as the underlying belief that there is something intrinsically disordered and change worthy about lgbtq these ministries will yeah but, exist. but insert but here's what we, we've talked about this before insert anything other than lgbtq yeah. i mean insert just who we are intrinsically as sinners you know in adam i mean this is right. what this is the offense of the cross is that jesus actually had to die for your identity you know this is what happened <laughs> I mean, this is what, and so I know you love it. Um, you know, we hold on until we're killed. You know, we don't, we don't go willingly, um, but we are in fact killed by the law, raised to new life by faith. But no one is, um, you know, it, it's, it's, I use the analogy all the time that, you know, our, our, the, the old Adam, you know, the death grip on our own identities, you know, like this is drowned, like, and it's, it's a very painful, painful way. And all right. of us have owed that we trod, um, most notably Jesus, you know, to go, to go into the depths of our need and into the, the depravity of our quote unquote identities, whatever the letter is, you know, um, and, and that's really the offense. And so, you know, this happens to be about the cause du jour, you know, the sort of sexual identity, but, but it really is just as offensive to, um, to any um, sort of, well, the, the race of Adam, you know, the, the daughters and sons and daughters of Eve, as, as uh, C.S. Lewis writes, is that it is an offensive thing to warrant the judgment of God for an unbelieving um, person. And yet that's the Christian message, you know, that the conversion therapy is in fact just the, the proclamation of the gospel for the conversion of the dead to new life by faith, you know? Right, I mean, the people hear that word though, the <laughs> phrase, and they think, you know, shock treatment. Um, you know, uh, <clears throat> there were, I, I do think that on the, the edges of conversion therapy, there, there could have been some abuse. Sure. Abusive and practices I, and, and, and those kinds of things going on. But, but the idea of people voluntarily saying, I would like to be rid of this desire and, and, and working in a Christian context to do that using, yeah, using counselors, but also, you know, I think, I think one of the women described, you know, confession and, and getting together as a group to talk about the, the, the times they've fallen and studying the Bible and studying the Bible. I mean, that's exactly what you need to be doing um, to uh, if there is going to be kind of a, a sanctifying change within within the self uh, by God's grace, then he's going to use those means to, to do it. 
Um, and it's not a bad, that's not a, that's that, if that's what they mean by conversion therapy, that's, that's, that's not bad. And you don't want to conflate that with shock treatment. Yeah, I was specifically does. I found an interview where she, this is the director of the film. She equates the two. She's saying, don't let yourself be tricked by these people who are saying, well, we're not doing crazy things like shock therapy anymore. That's what conversion therapy brings up in your mind. We're just doing counseling and confession and reading the Bible. But make no mistake, she's saying it's conversion therapy just the same. So she's totally equating yeah. the two. Right. And that's I mean, you know, to be honest, I was preparing myself. I didn't know what to expect. I was preparing myself for um, that type of um, documentary and I was bracing and I was going to say, well, gosh, I don't know any Christian or person in the right mind that would condone, you know, inhuman or, or cruel tactics. Um, you know, so thank God. I mean, to a certain degree, it, it was a different movie than I expected. But but I'm not surprised, Nick, because I think that that the way that they were talking about at the end, um, clearly they were equating their what I would say rather benign, you know, sort of Christian um, concern for for besetting sin with, you know, blood on your hands. I mean, they clearly were drawing that line implicitly. And so you've said now that she's drawn it explicitly. But I think, um, you know, that's what I had the whole time, Matt, too, the reaction to the, the techniques. I was bracing myself for, you know, where we were, we met with people, we, we recognized something that was unscriptural and non-Christian in ourselves. We got together with other people who struggled with this. We confessed and prayed and had support groups to sort of fight the, the besetting desires of our bodies. And I was like, yes, yes, that sounds, that all sounds <laughs> about what you should be doing. And I was just bracing myself for, and then they starved us for six weeks, you know, or like play loud music or, you know, something from, from Homeland or something. You know? I was like, <laughs> and I was like, oh, well that, we don't agree with that. But, you know, for the most part, I was like, this sounds a lot like, you know, again, insert other besetting sin that has the, that threatens to overwhelm and, and consume, um, you know, whether it's, whether it's, you know, misplaced food out desires or alcohol or work, you know, whatever the case may be that, that God has explicitly prescribed from our, uh, for the good, for the goodness of his own children and insert that there and then, and then put these techniques to it and say, well, you know, I mean, I know that it was disappointing um, to the extent to which you weren't delivered this side of heaven, but it sounds a lot like a, a thorn in the flesh. Like it sounds a lot like, you know, a lot of the people that I've counseled and ministered to and, and walked with and myself included who, who wrestle with, with besetting sins in the constant cycle of confession, absolution and restitution, you know, which is a, which is a daily, if not hourly cycle of the Christian life. I, I couldn't help but think of a pornography in, the, in this context. I mean, there's some guys, uh, we have a group at our church that meets guys together and talk about their desire to be rid of that, um, of that sin and uh, do the same kind of thing. You could they confess, they say, here's what I did this week. Please help me. They pray for each other. You know, imagine, you know, imagine thinking that a program like that, where you're trying to get someone you know, separated from this deep desire. And then even guys who come out of that, these accountability things, we've run I, I know one guy in particular who doesn't watch porn anymore but really wants to right <laughs> and he has the he has the he has the memories still stuck in his head he's married but it's just it's just like a it's a constant you know temptation i mean the, the remedy at least as this film 
suggest it is, is to tell those guys, oh, you know what? We were wrong the whole time. <laughs> you, this is something so, so inherent in you. And God gave you this desire to look at other people having sex on the screen. So, you know, you know, go for it. Um, and in fact, just identify as someone who said, this is, this is where your sexuality lies and that, and then you'll find happiness then you'll find joy. That remedy will lead you to death. That, that, that's I the, know a minister that counsels in that direction. Their name really nameless, but um, not wow. not someone that I. Um, I hope not. They see too very often. <laughs> um, no, it's not. Okay. Okay. Um, the whole idea was that the shame. I mean, again, just to your point. I mean, that, that in the conversation. Again, this was not. This is not someone. This is just in in the context of speaking across various denominations. But in the in the context of this conversation, it was well. There's so much unnecessary shame and guilt for a relatively small problem that, you know, when I have when I run into someone like the person you're describing, Matt, I basically say, you know, lighten up. I mean, that was that was the extent of the conversation. Like, you know, just give it a rest, buddy, uh, because there are a lot worse things to worry about. And I said, well, we're just going to agree to disagree about that because, um, you know, I think that that's there's a lot of problems that stem from. That. I mean, again, we don't have to go. We could have a whole class on that but but that's the same root is that is that shame and guilt which um you know was it c.s lewis or francis shaver talked about godly shame godly guilt like there's proper guilt you know that's what that's what the pastoral that's what our jobs to a certain degree are to help uh walk people through that like where are you actually um righteously uh incurring shame and guilt you know like i'm not to be the one like well you know i feel so bad because i've been breaking every of the ten commandments like well you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I hate to break this to you, but you should feel bad. You know, like I just can't stop lying, cheating, stealing, cussing, coveting, you right. know, dishonoring. As opposed to I feel bad because I, I did this sin 10 years ago, which I confessed 20 billion that's times. That's right. Exactly right. <laughs> that's the pastoral task. Right. Right. Where do we actually and that's where we you know, Jesus talks about loosening, um, you know, the keys, the power of the keys to loosen and bind, you know, like we are appropriately loosening people from their guilt when it is confessed and absent and absolved and appropriately locking, as it were, when they refuse, or at least they're besetting in this place and say, well, you know, I can't, um, I don't have the power to not convict you. That's the power of the Holy Spirit, but I do have the power to, um, or I do have the the words of absolution when in which you come to to this confession. But but I'm with you, Matt. I mean, this is the root: is that anything that brings discomfort or shame is un, is is immediately from a non-Christian perspective seen as um, that which needs to be silenced or or rejected out of hand. And, you know, this is, again, we come back to it all the time, the two words of God, like the first word of the law is by design to provoke wrath and to bring righteous and godly guilt and shame to sinners in service of, um, of bringing them to their knees in hope for absolution. And so that's, you know, as long as people believe that, <laughs> you know, there's going to be exodus ministries for not just former homosexuals or people with homosexual desires, but um, sinners who have found the mercies of God in Christ. The film does mention briefly a secular psychologist who's also at work helping homosexual desired people who don't want to be come out of that lifestyle. But it is 95% about church people, Christians who are interacting with the word of God. So we should do the film, the service of interacting with their long section, dealing with the scriptural text. Oh, wait, they don't mention the biblical <laughs> text say, like, at, at all. <laughs>
So, yeah, so they don't even mention it, it, the sort of foundational well, ideas that are driving these Except because the way that the woman, uh, one of the main women who was speaking spoke, she said, you know, well, I grew up and I used to believe that, you know, God had a design for our bodies and that there was something meaningful about the way that men and women fit together. And then yeah. they clipped to her like speaking and she was saying, you know, I don't want to be too graphic, but, you know, our bodies fit Yvette together. Cantu you know? Schneider. Yeah. Um, and I was in the whole I mean, my experience of watching the movie the whole time was like, I don't. I mean, I don't understand what you're so upset about um, in terms of, of what you were participating in. Now, I do understand if you became an unbeliever, you rejected the Christian um, faith and, and narrative, and you essentially said, I don't believe in that God anymore. Well, that's then, what the well, movie's really about. That's what, well, that's what I get. But, but to voluntarily, as a Christian, um, submit yourself to an organization that was going to be transparent, which it seems to be, that didn't seem to have any you know, I'm, uh, there wasn't any hints of, um, you know, sort of uh, deviancy or anything illegal, I mean, which I was grateful for. You know, I was, again, I was bracing myself the whole time for, for one of the guys to have turned out to be some sort of huge creep. And then we were like, uh, well, you know, that, that's terrible. But, you know, a voluntary submission to a Christian organization that was committed to helping you pray, confess, and and be, um, however, this side of heaven delivered from an unwanted besetting sin. I said, I don't, I don't, that sounds like church. <laughs> sounds like church. Right? I don't know. Like, why else did you come to church? Like, if ever you had everything was great for you and you didn't have any idea of sin in your life and you didn't have any hope for redemption and you, things were just perfect the way they are with your, with your in, inborn identity, well, then, you know, then you're probably not in church because because the people that are that i see on a weekly basis are wrestling with something have um come to to see something in themselves that by god's mercies they they are able to to um hold but they hold in the hope for release and redemption and restoration um whatever it may be and that seemed to be uh what lies at the heart of um, at least the initial exodus people i don't know where they are now and i think that should be commended yeah, I mean, I think there was a, I do think, going back to some of the, the flaws in the the theological understanding of the organization, I, th I think it, there also seems to be this kind of idea, and I remember this debate going on actually in the Anglican, in the, in the Episcopalian world before, right before the split, 2003 through 2006, where some on our side of things were saying, oh no, there is no such thing as orientation, there's no such thing as um there's no such thing as a as someone being born or right. having an inherent right. desire that can't go away. It's it's, it's it has to be due to some kind of abuse or yeah. some kind of, uh, and, and sometimes that's the case. But but I, but I I I think that was a mistake. I think that was to the extent that Exodus really did believe that, right, and teach that. I do think that's an error because I I mean just you and I and every other Christian knows that there are predilections, predispositions, right. things that we're born with and right. desire. I, I'll, I'll call them orientations. If you yeah. want to call them, but, yeah, but, but orientation all have those idolatry. things. Right. right. So you can't say, okay, well, you know, let's trace it back. Okay. You're an alcoholic. Uh, this must be due to some kind of abuse you receive. Well, maybe, yeah. maybe. it may just be that yeah. you're, <laughs> you're not, you're not a well, you might have a gene and they right. might have a genetic right. predisposition to it. I mean, like right, our right. fallenness, I mean, Romans eight, you know, all of yeah. 
creation cries out for redemption and our bodies last I checked were part of creation, you know, even though exactly. we're the pinnacle of it. And I, I agree with you. I think that's where the, I used to make that argument all the time is that, you know, there, there are all sorts of inborn um, unchosen, you know, born this way realities uh, to our, to our sinful bodies, not the least of which we die that Jesus came to redeem. And so I, I agree with you. I, I remember fighting or at least making that argument a bunch because if, um, because what happened was, at, for a brief moment, they were going to argue that there was sort of, sort of a gene, you know, like a sexual mm-hmm. determinant gene. And right. now that now that's been right. blown out of the water because of our because of you know now it's just personal subjective preference. Now there can't be, yeah, right. that's right. <laughs> but for a moment there was going to be, and I said, well, you know, whether it is or isn't. I mean, that was kind of the argument. Of course, now you know. Remember back in the day when I think it was Cynthia Nixon. Remember, she was like a. She was a self-proclaimed, you know, she was uh, sort of a heterosexual, and then she was a lesbian for a while, then she was a bisexual, and she was like the huge in the crosshairs of the sexual identity movement for a while because it was it was undercutting this idea that there was a sort of a biological necessity, um, sort of a biological essentialism to um, sexual identity. Well, that was, you know, in the old world, you know, five years ago, uh, but now, you know, now, of course, it's fluid um, to a to a rather dizzying degree. Um, but I'm with you, Matt. I think that's where, you know, but I think your, your analogy for the, for the alcoholics is, is a really interesting because that's often one that comes up when we talk about the way that Christians present and, and um, approach besetting sins, you know, and people have even thrown back at us. I know in the discussions, like, well, we don't mind someone saying I'm an alcoholic. If they're a Christian, why would you have a problem with a certain, certain sexual identity? And it's like, well, as long as they're talking about it with the same, yeah. you know, tearful pathos that a former alcoholic is, you know, right. who gets up Which and says, by the way, I can't remember the first six birthdays of my oldest child. And I showed up at a job interview, you know, 17 sheets to the wind. And I went on a three week bender and killed someone in Cabo or whatever. It's like, sure. You know, let's talk about it with that level of. If that's of, what you mean by gay empathy. Exactly. Um, and we can um, we'll be the first people. To be, I mean, I'm as I, I tear up when I hear uh, confessions like that with former alcoholics um, as as quickly as anyone because I'm, you know, one I can share some of their pain empathetically, but two I'm also amazingly grateful that God has delivered them from from that bondage. And so, if that's the way you want to talk about it, well, then you know we, uh, you know, praise God. Uh, but that's not what's being argued by both this movie and then in our context by people that are trying to appropriate something. Um, positive to the quote unquote sexual identity. And of course we keep coming back to this, but this is, this is the times in which we live. I mean, this is, you know, this is, I wonder how many discussions Cranmer at the um, white horse porch had over, um, you know, justification and, and, you know, sacramental theology, like that was what was the, that was what was the issue for them. And this is the issue for us and it's related, but I think that we have to watch movies like this and be in conversations like this because there is a narrative and the narrative, yes, has to do in this case with sexual identity, but it really is fundamentally a non-Christian narrative, which is that if there's something inherent and and um, essential about who I think I am that God has said is is um, broken, flawed, and sinful, well, then that's going to be the conflict, whether it's your sexual identity, whether it's your uh, proclivity for for passions or lust, desires, loves, as Augustine said, you know, he says we don't love too little, we love all the wrong things too much, you know, well, that's going to come into conflict if you believe that. As long as people believe that, 
there's going to be Exodus, you know, type uh, ministries. And, you know, as far as I can tell, the Exodus is a pretty good um, name for a, um, for a Christian ministry to bring, bring out of bondage and into freedom. You know, I wanted to go check out that, what was the freedom March? Was that the name of the yeah. formerly transgender mm-hmm. guy? Like, you know, that was inspiring. It's like, Oh, I wish that guy was hanging out around our town. I'd, I'd um, invite him to come speak at our church. I think it's probably worth mentioning the one other um, sort of really emotional touch point that the film hits, which is when Julie Rogers, the young lesbian who just, who describes herself as a survivor of this movement tells the story about how she was encouraged to include a rape story that she experienced in her testimony against her will. Um, I think that's pretty terrible. I'm sure that the person who encouraged her may have his own side of the story to the extent that that wasn't encouraged against her will. That's bad news. She seems to have had some real emotional struggles and it seems like she could have been cared for a lot better. But that also seems like it's on that guy and he he may be a creep and I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a classic technique, though. And I think in any, you know, conversion type narrative, whether it's Christian or not, you know, you get the person who was, you know, the worst possible version of the pre conversion life, yeah. uh, you know, and you throw everything you can at it. And, you know, but this is not just I mean, it happens to happen fairly often. And, and I have pushed back on this where I've seen it in various Christian capacities where you get the person who's, you know, father, um, yeah. you know, or someone killed themselves. Or Every youth ter- camp. It's like, who has like, the worst story? Or, and then they put them up there in front of people and they say, you know, tell us about how Jesus met you in the midst of your grief. And it's like some 16 year old. And I'm like, and I have really, I've had some pretty hard conversations with leaders in various capacities over my life um, to not let that happen. But but to be not to be fair, but just to, to look at the way that these happen, like there is a that that's a, a technique that is um, that is, you know, unfortunately part of the sort of the, the narrative building structure of you know people that are trying to convince people. But I agree with you. That was heartbreaking, you know, just from a from a because whether she was talking whatever she even if she had just been talking about a normal Christian conversion at like a youth camp, you know, and mentioning her testimony like that, I think she was right to be to be concerned about how intimate that was. And I think it was wrong for him to, to, as it were, guilt her or to shame her into not using it for the sake of what, I forgot how he, she said he put it, but it's something like it wasn't as powerful. It as would it really make your testimony more powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I mean, see, I thought, I can see how within the context of an organization, which does or at least elements of it taught that um, homosexuality was always just some, the, the, result is some kind of abuse that that was right. necessary you've got that's to have right. that in there um so i can see why they would insist on that although i agree it's just it, it that comes from a faulty understanding of the fall and it's you don't you don't pry that out of somebody and if she refuses <laughs> you, you just have somebody else do the talk you know right <laughs> and right. i do think i do exactly. think there's something there's something as we're talking about it now you know that we going forward i, I do think that that there is a um there is in that perhaps in that culture, you know, maybe homosexual desires were seen as, you know, incredibly beyond the pale so much so that if you even were able to, you know, one of the guys said, I think at some point where he couldn't have considered confessing that um, as a reality, because it would be such a huge deal. And it's like, you know, if we go back to the way that Paul, like Paul spoke, yes, very, very um, forcefully about, 
um, the prohibitions against homosexual activity, but it was ostensibly two people who he knew were wrestling with those very sins. I mean, it's not like he was saying, well, there's people way far away from you in the Corinthian church or in Ephesus or in um, the Roman world who may or may not be dealing with this sin, but we know that no one in our churches deal with it. Like he was speaking to the churches and assuming one, well, one assumes that uh, with knowledge, pastoral knowledge of some of the things that people had been sharing with him and confessing. And so I think, you know, as we go forward, it's not that we want to destigmatize, which is what they want, you know, sexual sin. But I do think to the extent that we can approach, appreciate that, that there is a, a uh, spectrum of sexual brokenness and this is on that spectrum and that we can um you know like the great john newton you know his he was renowned you know the former slave trader who did you know he was he was renowned people people would go um anecdotally from all over the country to confess to him because he was renowned for never flinching you know no matter what like no matter what they said to him uh he wouldn't flinch at their confession because he was aware of his own deep sinfulness and need and i think to the extent that we can welcome you know open confession across this spectrum you know maybe would have helped some of these people earlier on in their christian lives deal with this in a more healthy way than it turns out that they ultimately they ultimately had. I don't know. I'm mean, just just thinking out loud. But the way that they talked about it um, was disappointing for me as a pastor because I would love I would love to think that a 16 year old could come and say, "Here's here's what I'm wrestling with. Can you help me?" Uh, as opposed to saying, "Of course I couldn't be wrestling with this because that means I'm not a Christian." And I think that's that's really was part of the problem. Um, I will say, I mean, it, it, how many thousands of people went through? the exodus program so it's 700,000 yeah, people so have they, gone through right and they're presented all as victims like they're, they're every single one of these people have been abused the survivors so yeah yeah by exodus you know i just i uh right before this podcast i have a friend uh, gary ingram who who leads a ministry called living waters that he's seems like attracted yeah i know christian it. Mm-hmm. he's a great guy he came and spoke in our church several times and i said do you have any comment about the uh, about the film and he hasn't watched yet he's been traveling but he said but he did write uh, what i can say is that for many of us exodus was a lifeline i attended the annual conference for 10 years uh it provided hope that god is still at work in the world transforming lives and those of us who experience same-sex attraction or identity confusion struggles have not been forgotten or abandoned like everyone called to surrender self to surrender self sin and temptation to god this is a discipleship issue, not a prayer, not a pray away the gay issue. Um, but it's interesting because he 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 looks back on that time not as torturous, not as like they were abusing him, or he was he felt like he was dehumanized in any way. But he saw that as wow, these people there's hope to get out of this. I love there's hope to to restrain. Them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's Harvest USA. I mean, there's there's that that was one of the the I, I forget the guy's name but i sent it to y'all he, he wrote a review of it who had been involved in the leadership and he said you know of course these people are upset and that was clear by the movie but there's for every one of them there's 10 20 people you know who who like your friend said you know this was this was the lifeline for me this was this was hope and and I think that's going to be the the pastoral challenge going forward of course as we get more people who who um you know, resist the 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 judgment or the the statement of the law as a as a you know something on their being is that we have to be right there with law and gospel to um to to preach 
you know, the two words of God and trust that the conviction by the Holy Spirit will be similarly met with the, the life-giving freedom of the absolution um, and, and walk forward. Amen to that. Well, that's going to be all the time that we have this week. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you'd like to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and to Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Amen.